Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University, Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome back, Jeff. It's been a while since we had a, a chat. I'm interested in your, your new book, as a way into a conversation about just what your latest thinking is about the realm of public policy. I suppose that your underlying thesis in the book is that there, there's a closure around the public imagination, our ability to reimagine public policy. And I, I just wonder what your analysis or your um, thesis is in terms of the origins of that closure before we go on to some of the ways in which to reimagine how we organize and design society and, and uh, deal with some of these intractable and, uh, well, some people talk a little bit about a polycrisis where there's mm. obviously very deep interconnections as well, but across areas like ecology and economy. But where, where does the closure come from? What is your own sense of what we're talking about? Yeah, well, thanks, Peter. So m most of my work is very sort of practical stuff with governments. I'm in an engineering department now. It's all about sort of fixing problems. But I became more and more convinced we had a, a deeper underlying problem of imaginative closure. And this really struck me shortly before the pandemic when I, I spent a lot of time with Friday school strike activists, so young eco-activists around the world, and was really sort of struck how pessimistic they were. Uh, about any prospect for sort of positive social and political change. And then I started interviewing lots of people in different fields from uh, politics to civil society to business. And again, they could easily picture ecological disaster or technological futures, but not what might happen to our health service or welfare or democracy. And um, so, yeah, I became, this is sort of in a sense, hypothesis one is that there has been some shrinking of that shared imaginative space. As to why it shrunk, I think there are lots of different reasons. Uh, there's a kind of intellectual reason, which is perhaps the disappointment of some of the, you know, the movements of change, the, the radical left, the Marxist tradition in the 20th century. There's probably a, an economic reason that so many people have faced stagnant incomes now for a generation or more in countries like the US and the UK. And that means it's always rational to be pessimistic, to assume your kids might be worse off uh, than you are. Um, obviously, the sense of hitting ecological limits makes us perhaps less confident about the ability to change uh, society and met many other factors. But the reason I wrote the book is I think one of the reasons is that the institutions which should be helping us to imagine have actually reneged on their role. And that's the key one. So universities, I mean, a university or one, uh, they do very little in this space for a broad audience. Um, political parties at various points in history really tried to think 20, 30, 40 years into the future. They're now much more trapped in a kind of eternal uh, present. Our social media and media, again, uh, really struggle with any long-term uh, uh, perspective, let alone an imaginative perspective. And weirdly, the arts, too. Uh, so I, I, I've just done another book out uh, this week on uh, the arts and social imagination. Large parts of the arts world have essentially become woven into the consumption patterns of the very rich in fashion. Uh, and with very sort of bullshitty stuff about, 
ecology and social change, but not really much serious engagement. So many of the, in a sense, the places, the institutions we often spend public money on to, to help our society have vacated this space. So there's not the sort of the collective debate about where we might, might want to get to and how we get there and so on, which perhaps there has been in previous eras. Just uh, let's uh, stay with that thought about the, the arts because it, uh, it so happens that the, the School of Law is actually working with creatives and uh, artists across the island. And our, our underlying thesis is that there's still a role for artistic uh, minds to, to open up the imagination that they have a, a particular role in, in bringing new things into the world and critiquing uh, and maybe making visible those uh, traps or closures that confront us, especially around the economy. I know that you have some thoughts about how the arts might continue to have that role and, and how sometimes that role is overstated. Can you summarize that? Yeah, so this new book, which is this really argument is summed up in the title, which is Profits at a Tangent. It says that the arts never really are profits in the classical sense that they tell you where your society is heading. Now, often the artists talk about themselves as if they're doing that, but they've actually never done that. But what they do is at a tangent, exactly as you said, open up new ways of thinking, new ways of feeling, new ways of experiencing. So in relation to the new economy, you know, the arts which explore the nano and the cosmic, you know, help you think about being part of very complex systems in ways which perhaps rational analysis can't do on its own, or they help you think about waste in a different way and circularity and uh, you know, making uh, products of all kinds or sculptures or artwork using, uh, using old plastic or rubber or glass or, or metal. There's an amazing amount happening around AI and data at the moment with the arts. I think showing things about a, you know, a, a data surveillance AI world, which again, you can't quite reach through sort of prose analysis. So I think they've got a vital role in helping us think our way into the future, but they just need to be a bit humbler. Their role is as part of, a team part of a collective, is not the kind of 19th century view of the, the godlike artist showing the way to the promised land, which you still sometimes get in kind of brochures at festivals and galleries and so on. That seems to be a really anachronistic way of thinking about the role of the arts, but they are part of our process of, of, of rethinking the world. That's very good. Okay. The, uh... Part of your uh, conversation recently with uh, Matthew Taylor uh, touched on the the bias uh, in in the academy and I suppose in, in, a, in a wider sense around um, materiality that we we tend to imagine that we're going to engineer uh, reconfigure the objects rather than actually bring new mental processes or new creative uh, um, ways of thinking about the world to bear and that's certainly clear in parts of the university where we're sitting, you know, sustainable development, the SDGs, could often be dominated by engineering, and then the social sciences are expected to come in and supplement the active communicators of the, the solutions. Where, where, does the, uh, where does that bias come from, and are we beginning to address that? Are there uh, any signs that we're moving towards a, a thick version of uh, reimagining as opposed to the, the thin version. You've said had some thoughts about that. So there are two questions there really about what we mean by that material bias and uh, how do we create the conditions within the academy where we're 
um, cultivating uh, much uh, thicker versions of, of change and change processes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easier for us to get our heads around thinking of the future in terms of stuff, of physical hardware, you know, a city with drones flying around or, um, or new materials or robots doing all the work. That's kind of quite easy to picture. But if you look at history, uh, although materiality does change everything, you know, what our buildings are like, our transport, in many ways, changes of consciousness are more fundamental to historical change, and they're invisible they're by, by their nature. And yet in relation to futures, an enormous amount is spent on imagining and designing material futures. So new yeah, nanotechnology, new transport things, new battery technologies, and that's all fine. But almost nothing by comparison is spent on mobilizing brain power to try and imagine, yeah, what could consciousness be like in 50 or 60 years' time? How will people think and feel uh, and, uh, and experience? And what I've called in a, in a paper put out about a year ago, exploratory social science, the use of rigorous methods to try and explore things like a zero carbon economy or a care system for the late 21st century or a, a, a reimagining what democracy would look like if you were starting now, not in the, you know, 200 years ago. Uh, and it seems to me this is one thing where the university should be playing a big role in non-material uh, social imagination to complement the, you know, ubiquitous stuff from Hollywood to smart city fairs and so on, which focuses on just the stuff. But we know uh, the stuff on its own doesn't give us a, a very happy, happy future. And it should be obvious it, it's both and, not either or. Yes. It, it struck me that there's a, there's a, there's a connection there between the, 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 the quality of uh, attention and your interest in, uh, in mental well-being as well. That isn't there a, a deep connection uh, between our ability to reimagine and the ways in which the system currently bears down on our ability to apply ourselves, to experiment with our disposition. Um, and in many ways, we are captive to the system that reproduces its own closure because of its impact on our, our mental health and uh, the space that we have to reimagine how we how we live and think and care for the self. Yeah, no, I think there's many, many dimensions to that. I mean, one of the people I go back to in the book is uh, Viktor Frankl, his very famous study of concentration camp survivors, where he basically shows how vital hope is to survival through hard, hard times. You don't have any sense of, of hope. It's not surprising you are both psychologically and physically uh, weaker. I think we know a lot about agency, how important agency is for mental well-being and lots of people feel a complete loss of any agency control over their their lives particularly perhaps if you're under 25 and you know if you've got the prospect of a decent job housing etc etc so i think the field you you you're opening up in that discussion what is the relationship between yeah mental well-being in the present as we're well, a line of sight to better futures is a really important one and uh, I don't sort of believe it's a particular conspiracy of the system to block that out, but I think it's an effect of many other things systemically which have crushed this space for a sense of, of, of creative agency. Yes. And the, the, the other um, point that um, um, Matthew raised, of course, was the... No, I'm, I'm sure you, you both 
uh, are are very cognizant of the difficulty um, that social science and the humanities have in raising the responsibility of our models of capitalism. Um, insofar as there are vested interests, um, these traps are reproduced as well. The, 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 the so-called 1% um, not only have access to um, intellectual property, but they have great access to the ways in which the attached economy is managed and that closure is reproduced uh, through social media and uh, the other parts of the media complex. Um, so are there any signs that we're opening up that question? Are we beginning to uh, name uh, forms of capitalism as the underlying problem here when it comes to reimagining how we might design the systems, parts of the, the social system. Yeah, so after the financial crash, which is about 15 years ago, I wrote a piece in Freshman magazine with the title After Capitalism, which actually then turned into a book. And I went and asked lots of economists, okay, what's your theory of after capitalism? And not a single orthodox economist can even cope with the question. They have no way of framing it. All of their models and theories essentially assume capitalism will last forever. And so I say to them, come on, that's not plausible. You know, societies change, they reemerge, economic systems are never eternal, especially capitalism. So surely you must have some way of thinking about what might be beyond it. And the answer was there was very little. And that book, which was called The Locust and the Bee, in a way was slightly mistimed. I thought there would be a great thinking of um, evolution beyond capitalism after the crash. Um, but I, I got the timing wrong. But now there is actually a lot happening around the world, lots of study groups and think tanks, funding from the big US foundations, bizarrely, on new economic uh, thinking. One of the organizations I work with is, is Demos Helsinki, who've been doing sort of work mapping these alternatives and trying to bring them together to share ideas. There isn't, I wouldn't say there's anything which is yet the blueprint for alternative cap to capitalism, in a way there shouldn't be. That was the, the old way of thinking that you'd have a, you'd take over the uh, center of power and on the next day you would sort of decree yes. communism or socialism, whatever it may yeah. be. That's not either desirable or plausible. But I think what these different clusters of work are doing is imagining, for example, commons ownership models for land or for data, different ways of running um, yeah, our work, uh, different ways of running care, different ways of uh, integrating uh, ecological thinking into your, your tax and your regulations. And you add all of those together and you see you know, a plausible evolution beyond capitalism. And the metaphor which I, I, I've liked um, is comparing this to monarchy. So 200 years ago, it was thought that monarchy was rooted in human nature, was an inevitable part of our society, but then thought democracy was something which had been tried and failed. Uh, and, uh, uh, and obviously the world required empires and kings and so on. And what we did in many countries, certainly in Northern Europe, wasn't in fact to again cut the heads off the kings and queens, it was to slowly push them to the margins of power and relevance. And I think that's a much closer metaphor to what might happen to capitalism. It's not that you'll get rid of all your banks and your markets and so on, but it'll just become slowly less dominant, both in our psyche and in power and in shaping systems and other alternatives will fill some of that space. But probably over you know, 30, 50, even 100 years rather than in a great big bang revolutionary moment. Yes, I think the space where that seems to be happening 
is around uh, the issues of growth, economic growth, and the ways we measure that the, there is a, a deeper uh, critique emerging even in parts of mainstream academia and so-called, well, there's new forms of economic uh, political theory uh, reflecting some of these ideas. Can I finish with, um, you know, you obviously you travel to many parts of the world now, and to what extent do you suspect or have a sense uh, that when we identify a certain closure in uh, the imagination, that it's very a function of the, the, the demise of Western hegemony, really, in terms of the field of ideas, and that we might have to look to other parts of the world to, to really drive the kinds of changes and reimaginations that you're, that you're thinking about. Mm -hmm. So the way that was my hope in writing this book, and I did a lot of conversations and hosted sessions with groups around the world, in particularly China, India, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, in a way hoping I would find these sort of radical alternatives. But slightly depressingly, in for different reasons in each part of the world, I think there's a, a parallel kind of closure. So in, in China, which in many ways is you know, the dominant country of this century, for various reasons, the, the system is very happy with technological hardware futures, but it's almost impossible to think creatively about society, let alone decision-making. There was much more 10 years ago than there is now. It's become essentially suppressed. Uh, and the, the writers interested in this space don't dare put their heads above the parapet. In India, the main sort of more recent imaginary is very much rooted in, in Hindutva, in uh, uh, you know, Modi and the BJP's idea of returning to a sort of Hindu worldview and the idea that, you know, India invented genetics and all sorts of things, which I find rather backward looking. Uh, Africa, a generation or two ago, had very quite utopian ideas around um, uh, these ideas like Ujama in Tanzania or Ubuntu, these sort of African values which would help to redefine ownership. And again, all of that is pretty much gone. There's, there is confidence in Africa, there's a lot of interest in business and tech. But that sort of social imaginary is, is again, weaker than it was uh, a while ago. So I think we've got a global problem of you know, sort of re-energizing our imagination. And, and I definitely would expect, as that happens, there probably will be more useful ideas coming out of other places. So Taiwan, for example, uh, I think is doing the most amazing work on democracy, far ahead of anywhere in Europe. And we need to learn from their creative imagination. Um, uh, some of the work, uh, I mean, I, I'm with Bangladesh quite a little at the moment, you know, they're doing work on thinking about collective intelligence, which is one of my great interests, again, ahead of anywhere in, in the North, if it were, North America or Europe. So I think it's very important that we, we do start with a global bias and assumption that, as you say, the West is in slow decline, probably the best ideas won't all come out of uh, uh, Oxford and Cambridge or Harvard or Berlin or whatever. But, um, but not to romanticize uh, the conditions elsewhere, which may also be suppressing the ability to think radically. Great. Jeff, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thanks. That's lovely to uh, get those thoughts.